Any amount of bonus depreciation is great for investors. We've just lived in kind of this golden era where we've been able to take 100% and get, you know, I've heard stories about people getting a good portion of their down payment back in terms of tax savings and picking up an investment or a revenue generating property, getting that down payment back because they were able to do a cost sake study, take advantage of bonus, and now go redeploy those funds into a new project. And we've been very fortunate over the last five years. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. This is the show for high income earners to become high net worth havers. This is the show where we will teach you how to invest in real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is Eric Oliver. Today we're digging into the topic of cost segregation and accelerated depreciation. This is one of real estate's biggest superpowers when it comes to managing our tax bills and making smart tax-advantaged investment decisions. If you haven't heard of cost segregation before, then get ready for an important ride. If you have heard of cost segregation, but you're not really sure how it works, then this is the conversation for you. You're going to learn how cost segregation actually functions, how it will help you get a bigger loss to show on your taxes, how bonus depreciation works and how that's ticking down, but it's not so big of a deal. We're still in a great position from a bonus depreciation standpoint and so much more. Folks, when they talk about real estate and its tax advantages, oftentimes we'll say tax loopholes, quote unquote. Personally, I really dislike that phrase. These are real tax advantages to real estate investing that are not hidden in the tax code. They're not tricks that we're using to kind of get around certain mistakes within the tax code. These are things that the government deliberately puts into the tax code to incentivize us to make investments, to acquire properties, to improve our properties, and so much more. It's a very important conversation. This is a complex topic that not a lot of investors understand. So that is what you're here for today. You're going to get a front row seat all about cost segregation and accelerated depreciation and what it means for you. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investments. To date, I've acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com, schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Eric Oliver. We're digging all into the world of cost segregation. Let's go. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dig into the very important world of cost segregation, depreciation, and how real estate investors can use depreciation to further our tax strategy. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about yourself and what you do? And then we'll dive into the world of cost seg. Sure, Taylor. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here today. As you said, my name is Eric Oliver. I'm with a company called Cost Segregation Authority. My background is in accounting. I've got a degree in accounting. Uh, I'm not a CPA. Don't hit me with any too too hard of questions on 
taxes, but I know a little bit about real estate taxes and depreciation mainly. I've been with Cost Segregation Authority now for about six years, seven years almost now, I guess, and love what I do. We work with CPAs, investors, EAs, tax preparers across the country, helping reduce tax liability through cost segregation. That's been a great job. Love learning more about real estate, getting to know more about real estate, meeting new real estate clients, and helping, like I said, reduce taxes. Love it. So we're going to dig a little bit into the weeds here down the road, but for our listeners who don't know what cost seg is, can you give us a you know the quick one minute, two minute, like little pitch about what cost segregation really represents and the power of it. Sure. Cost segregation really is just accelerated depreciation on your real estate assets. Real estate typically gets depreciated over either 39 years for commercial real estate or 27 and a half years for residential units. Just to make the math easy, let's say you buy a multifamily property for 2.7 million you would get a $10,000 write-off every year for the next 27 and a half years. You just take that 2.7, divide it by 27 and a half, it's roughly 10,000 a year as a deduction. Now that deduction comes off your taxable income. So that's why a lot of us get into real estate is for those deductions. We're able to reduce our taxable income by having these write-offs. Well, the problem with that's called standard depreciation or straight line depreciation. And the problem with that is I may not own my apartment building for 27 and a half years. I may have a different exit strategy. I want my deductions today. And so the way we do that is through an engineering-based study where we go in, when you buy an apartment building, you're not just buying the land and the walls. You're also buying a bunch of flooring, a bunch of countertops, a bunch of cabinets, a bunch of appliances. You're buying some asphalt out in the parking lot. You're buying some land improvements, you know, with the pool and the fencing. And The IRS says that all these items I just mentioned should be depreciated over a shorter useful life. The problem is, is that when we close on that apartment building and I hand my CPA or tax preparer my closing statement, they typically don't know the value of the parking lot. They don't know the value of the appliances in the building. And that's where a cost segregation study comes in. And it's just as it sounds, we're segregating the costs of that building into shorter asset lives so that we can front load our depreciation at a much faster rate. And then, as you know, Taylor, there's a number of reasons why we do that. There's time value of money, there's inflation, there's cash flow. You know, I want my deductions today versus letting the IRS hold on to these deductions over the next 27 and a half or 39 years. Love it. And we love saving money today. The flip side of that, that always comes up when we talk about depreciation is the you know, the other side of the coin, which is depreciation recapture, right? It, recapture. It's not just a, a free loss that we can write off and sail off into the sunset. When we sell, we have depreciation recapture. So can you tell us first off what depreciation recapture is, and then we'll dig into whether you think it's, you know, such a big deal or not. Right. Yeah. So that's a question we get most often from tax preparers or investors is, listen, Eric, isn't this just a timing issue? If I take all this deduction up front, don't I just have to pay more back when I sell the asset? And the answer is is no. And so depreciation recapture, there's two types of tax you pay when you sell your asset. You pay capital gains tax on the gain of the sale, and you pay depreciation tax on the amount of depreciation you've taken. And so I'm telling you here to front load and take as much depreciation as you can up front and then we get that question coming back saying, well, the more I take up front, that just means a bigger tax bill. So I'm, it's just a timing issue, right? And the answer is no. The idea behind cost segregation is you take your deduction today against your ordinary income rate. So let's say I'm in a 37% tax bracket at the federal. I'm in a 37% federal tax bracket. I'm going to get my deduction today 
at 37%. When I sell the asset, I'm paying a portion of it back at a 20% capital gains rate or a 25% recapture rate and saving the spread. And I'm not even paying it all back. I'm only paying a portion of it back. And I'll, I'm going to back into an example, Taylor, because I think it makes more sense. But let's say I buy a building for a million dollars today and I sell it for $2 million five years from now. So everything's doubled in value, right? I bought all this stuff for a million. Five years later, I sold all this stuff for $2 million. Well, when I go to settle up with the IRS, they're going to think that everything's doubled in value. The land is doubled in value. The walls have doubled in value. And I'm also telling them that my dirty, nasty carpet that's five years old has doubled in value. Well, we know that carpet doesn't double in value. Carpet goes down in value. And actually, carpet is one of the things that we identify in our cost egg study as a five-year asset. Remember in that example, I bought it for a million, sold it five years later for two million. If my carpet's a five-year asset, Taylor, what's my carpet's book value after five years? Zero. It's fully depreciated. I shouldn't be selling my carpet for more than I bought it for. That's just silly. (laughs) People do it all the time, Taylor. There's people doing it right now as we're talking. And it's only because they haven't done a cost egg study, so they don't know the value of the carpet. Everything is just lumped together in this thing on their depreciation schedule that says building. They bought this building for a million. They're selling this building for two million, and they're paying tax on that. Well, when we do a cost egg study, we don't have to pay depreciation recapture on those five-year assets because they're fully depreciated after five years. And so those, that's the idea, again, just to kind of simplify, take your deduction at a high rate, pay back a portion of it at a lower rate at a future date, and save that spread. And that's really what we're doing with cost segregation. And keep that money in your pocket today so that you can compound it for those five years or whatever you hold and you know hopefully make more money. And a lot of these examples are, of course, going to assume that we have a gain when we sell rather than a loss, which is a different you know situation. Depreciation yeah. recapture can still play in in those cases. So another big topic here is, you know, we used to have 100% bonus depreciation. That ticked down. It's 80% this year. It's going down to 60% next year. Maybe, you know, there's some conversations around that. But before we get into the weeds, can you tell us about the bonus depreciation aspect of this? Because there are surprisingly few people talking about this. Yeah. Bonus depreciation is, it's a tool that the government uses to stimulate the economy. So bonus depreciation has been around a lot for a number of years, long before cost sake. Bonus depreciation, the IRS or the government says, we need to stimulate the economy. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to incentivize people to go out and buy stuff. So they have this thing called bonus depreciation. And at the time, back in 2017, bonus depreciation was at 50%. And what that means is that if you go out and buy any asset that has a useful life of 20 years or less, and at the time it had to be a brand new asset, you couldn't buy a used asset. So uh, I'll give the example of a bulldozer. Let's say I go buy a brand new bulldozer, and that bulldozer has a useful life of 20 years or less, which it does. I'm eligible to take a 50% bonus depreciation on that bulldozer. So if I buy a million-dollar bulldozer, if a bulldozer normally gets depreciated over, I don't know, 10 years, instead of taking one-tenth of a deduction, I get a $500,000 write-off in the first year, or 50% of that million-dollar purchase. The other 50% gets spread out over the next nine years in that example. 
So that's bonus depreciation. It incentivizes people to go out and buy stuff because they're going to get these deductions that they can then use to offset their income. That was 2017. So at the end of 2017, Donald Trump's our president. Donald Trump owns real estate. Donald Trump was updating the tax code. (laughs) And that's all we're going to say about that, right? So he's updating the tax code. Very favorable to real estate investors. A couple things changed. One is they implemented a 100% bonus. So now you get a 100% bonus on any assets with a useful life of 20 years or less. So that's great. The second thing that changed, which was, a, which was more impactful, was they added a few words to the tax code. Remember when I said it had to be brand new equipment in order for it to be eligible for bonus? That changed with the, new, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017-2018. They added five words. It said, new to you, the taxpayer. I think that's five words. <laughs> so now what that means is maybe yeah. six words. <laughs> this taxpayer, two words. I don't, I don't know. know. That's what bogged down is, on that. Yeah. So what that means, though, is I don't have to go buy a new bulldozer now. I can buy a used bulldozer. It's new to me, the taxpayer. And now all of a sudden I'm eligible for a 100% bonus on that. So if I go buy a million-dollar bulldozer, I now get a million-dollar write-off in the first year. I don't know how many of your inv- or your listeners are buying bulldozers, so let's put this in real estate terms. What does that mean for real estate? Well, remember, a piece of real estate typically is a 27-and-a-half-year asset or a 39-year asset. In order to be eligible for bonus, it has to have a useful life of 20 years or less. So if you don't do a cost-sake study, you cannot apply bonus because this is a 39-year asset. It has to be less than 20. It doesn't work. When you do a cost-sake study on this building, we're going to identify five, seven, and 15-year assets within your building. Those five, seven, and 15-year assets are now eligible for bonus. And if they were purchased between 927 of 17 and 1231 of 2022, you get 100% bonus. If they were purchased or placed in service in 2023, it's 80%. And then in 2024, it goes down to 60. So what that really means, Taylor, is bonus depreciation puts cost segregation on steroids and creates a bigger deduction in the first year. And so bonus does start to phase out, as you mentioned. It goes down 20% every year until 2027 when it's down to zero. So again, we started at 100%. 2023, it goes to 80, 2024, 60, and so on. However, I did just hear, I read an article actually, that the Ways and Means Committee in Congress has proposed to possibly extend the 100% bonus into 2025. So Congress will get together at the end of this uh, this year, 2023. They'll decide if it makes sense. My guess is it'll probably get extended based on the way the economy's shaping up, but that's to be seen. But if they extend it, that would be great for real estate investors. But even at 80% bonus or 60% bonus or even 20% bonus, those are still very favorable to real estate investors. Because remember, we used to do cost segregation when there was no bonus. And we're taking stuff that normally gets depreciated over 39 years and moving it into a five-year bucket. But with bonus, we get to take that five-year bucket and take some of that even faster. Any amount of bonus depreciation is great for investors. We've just lived in kind of this golden era where we've been able to take 100% and get, you know, I've heard stories about people getting a good portion of their down payment back in terms of tax savings and picking up an investment or a revenue generating property getting that down payment back because they were able to do a cost sake study, take advantage of bonus, and now go redeploy those funds into a new project. And we've been very fortunate over the last five years. 
Yeah, it was a pretty great deal. It was kind of funny in a way when 2023 rolled around and folks were quote losing that 100%. We were taking all the way down to 80% bonus depreciation. Some folks were kind of acting like we, you know, is all going away, everything's falling apart. It's still a really great deal in yeah. the grand scheme of things. Just not quite as great as it was, but still pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I agree. It's you know, we get that I get calls all the time. Hey, I heard we can't do cost segregation anymore because bonus depreciation goes away. And I'm like, no, 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 two different things, you guys. Bonus depreciation just puts cost segregation on steroids. Cost segregation is still great when there is no bonus, but when we've got this bonus, it's it's really good. So, um, and the nice thing is, is bonus depreciation applies to the year you put the property in service. So not a lot of people understand that. So some people will call me and say, hey, Eric, I got to hurry and do the COSAC study before the end of 2022 because I want to make sure I get a 100% bonus. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the case. If you don't need the deduction, don't do the COSAC study. You can do it in 2024 and you'll still get a 100% bonus because it went into service in 2022. So it's all based on the in-service date, not necessarily the date the COSAC study is done. Yeah. And I feel it would be good to go back and and clarify a bit in terms of writing depreciation off against your income. That's really only for real estate professionals, people who file real estate professional status on their taxes. Not everybody qualifies for that. If you do qualify for it, you probably already know, talk to your CPA. But I think you know, depreciation is still a pretty good deal for, you know, those who can only write their passive losses again off against their passive gains rather than their active income as well. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So typically real estate deductions. So in the terms of cost segregation, the deductions we're creating are considered passive deductions and they can only be used to offset passive income. So if I'm a doctor and I make half a million dollars a year as a doctor, but I own some real estate on the side and let's say my real estate makes a hundred thousand a year. When I do a cost segregation study and create this massive deduction, I can't use this deduction to offset my doctor's income. I wish I could. I can only use it to offset my rental income. Now, there's a few ways around that. There's, you know, maybe my spouse qualifies as a real estate professional. You know, we file a joint tax return and all of a sudden everything becomes active. And that's one way. A lot of the listeners have probably heard of there's a short-term loophole where if you're investing in short-term properties, those sometimes get treated as active if they meet certain criteria. And so those deductions can be used to offset active income. But those are kind of the two ways around that. But for some of us, we just, there's no ways around it. I'm an example of that. I have a W-2 job. My wife's got a W-2 job. And I don't, you know, the deductions I get from my real estate don't offset my W-2 cost seg income, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's good to clarify that. Again, I think the losses are still a pretty good deal for those who are not real estate professional status. But, you know, also important not to let the tax tail wag the dog too terribly hard. (laughs) But anyway, so when you get into the syndication space and start talking about doing cost seg on deals and speaking with or seeing operators talking about, of course, we do cost seg. You know, it's kind of funny how sometimes I'll see operators state different numbers about how much losses, how many losses they're going to produce in the first year, for example, and sometimes operators will state different numbers. Are some folks just blowing smoke? I mean, how in the world could different operators produce different amounts of passive losses for their investors, assuming they're buying the same properties? Yeah, you know, there is a factor. Sometimes I've seen where this gets confusing. Sometimes syndicators will 
operators will tell their investors, hey, if you give me $100,000 or a million dollars to invest in this property, I'm going to return to you X amount of depreciation. And a big factor in that is how that deal is leveraged with a loan. Because we're going to, cost segregation is done on the purchase price minus the land value. But if you're using a lot of capital to purchase that property, let's say you're putting 40% down versus 10%, that's going to impact the amount of return that you get on that 40%. Does that make sense? And that gets lost sometimes. So I've seen where people like, you know, on my last syndication deal, I got, you know, I put a million down and I got 800,000 back in the form of depreciation the first year. It seemed great. But on this last deal, I only got, you know, 300,000 back on my 800,000. It all the a big factor of that is how much of that deal is leveraged through a loan and what the down payment's going to be. That's the first thing. And then there are different asset classes that get different types of returns. For example, a big empty warehouse. If you've got a deal that you're investing in and it's a big warehouse and there's not a lot inside of it, there's not as much for us to segregate or depreciate in those early years. And so the results are going to be slightly different. But like you said, same property different operators should be pretty close as long as they're structuring the deal the same. Our average for us in our industry, we usually segregate around 30%. Now that does change by asset class life. So if you're buying a million dollar asset, assuming the land, there's no land. So let's, well, let's assume there's land because there's usually land. So let's say you buy an asset for a million two, we determine the land is worth 200,000. That gives you a million dollars of what we call depreciable basis. Typically, most cost segregation companies will come in somewhere around 30% of segregation. So we'll segregate 30% of that in the first year. And that that should be pretty standard across the board in terms of of segregation. But I will say, just like anything else, cost segregation is interesting in the fact that not all studies are created equal. And I don't mean that I'm not here to promote our company over somebody else's company. But what what I mean by that is there is no governing body. There is no, this is not an exact science. It's more of an art. It's just, it's the way we interpret the law versus the way they interpret the law. And it's just like if you were to take your tax return to three different CPAs, I guarantee you each of those CPAs is going to have you pay a different amount in taxes. And it's because of their understanding of the law, their interpretation of the law and how they're, how they're looking at things. So that may be some of the variance in, in different things, but that kind of gives you an idea. Well, my tax guy this past year, assumed to be former tax guy, had me pay a different amount because he put a five instead of a two and I overpaid and I caught his error. So it's fine. I overpaid. I'm getting the money back, but still not not fun to go through. So sometimes sometimes they make legitimate uh, mistakes. But you you mentioned, uh, I'm glad you brought up the, let's say, varying quality in cost seg studies because there are some services online that I've seen but not used that it seems like you just kind of put your credit card number in, punch in the address and give some basic details and they just give give you a report back without ever looking at the property, which to me seems like the IRS kind of might not love that if they really dig in, but what what do you think? Yeah, so that's a great point. So there's an IRS audit guide that the IRS puts out And this audit guide tells their agents how to review a study. And in the audit guide, it specifically says that, one, a site visit is required in order for it to be a quality report. So that's the first thing. So when you use an online service, it's kind of like the TurboTax of our industry. 
it just doesn't it doesn't pass the test. And if the IR, the, the chances of it being audited are slim. And I think that's where these online companies live in that world is, hey, we're going to give you some conservative numbers. We're going to spit out some averages. They're going to be conservative. It's probably not going to raise a red flag. No, no problems. But if it ever gets audited, they're going to throw it out because there wasn't a site visit. It's not done by a third party. So you may be likely to put in some information that's not exactly accurate. And if you know that it's going to get you a bigger return, they need a third party doing it. And you don't really have construction knowledge. So when you put in that you have a driveway, Taylor, do you know if your driveway is four inches of concrete or six inches of concrete? <laughs> Most investors have no clue. <laughs> so that's, those are the questions the IRS is going to ask you. They say, hey, Taylor, I see you've taken your depreciation on this uh, parking lot out here. Is it? Tell me how thick that asphalt is. And you better have an answer. Otherwise, they're going to throw the whole study out. They are, they're kind of, like I said, they're kind of like the TurboTax. They're significantly cheaper than having an engineering-based study done. However, they're so conservative because they're just using a modeling approach that whatever you pay to have an actual study done, you're going to get 10 times that back in the terms of tax savings that I've never seen an instance where it didn't make sense to pay for an actual study. Makes sense. So many great lessons here. One of the things that bugs me a little bit is my you know hill to die on is when we have conversations about tax advantages around investing in real estate so often real estate investors and folks in the industry will refer to these things as loopholes as though they're hidden somewhere in secret and tax code not really supposed to exist but no these things are in the tax code to be used and i think we should take the optimal and maximal advantage of them of course within the confines of the law 100 percent about that but you know, let's use them and, you know, be honest about it. I, I don't think we should be uh, ashamed. But anyway, right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Eric, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best deal you've ever done? I got to be honest with you, I haven't done a lot of deals, but I would say the best deal, I'm actually a, a passive investor in some micro apartments. So, We've invested in an opportunity zone here in Salt Lake, so we've taken advantage of the opportunity zone situation. Had some capital gains that I was able to put forth, and we have developed some micro-apartments. So actually, the way this came about is we actually did a cost-sake study on some micro-apartments up in Seattle. Loved the idea, loved the concept, and decided to implement some of those down here in Salt Lake. So these are Smaller apartments, they usually don't have any parking lots. They're next to public transit, whether it's the train station. And we build them from ground up and then stabilize them and then turn around and sell them and take the funds and reinvest into the next opportunity zone. I'm only on my second phase of that. But so far, I took a, a good chunk of my 401k and put it. I The owner of our company here at Costeg Authority had done it. And he's like, Eric, these things are a home run. And so we've been, I'm on my second phase now and plan on continuing to invest in those, but we've had great returns on those. Nice. Very cool. So we had the best deal. Every best deal has a worst deal. Sometimes on the other side of the coin, we're going to the other side of the coin. What is the worst deal you ever did? So I, as we talked prior to the show, I lived in Richmond, Virginia for a number of years before I moved to Long Island, New York. And we decided that we were going to keep our home that we had in Virginia and use it as a rental. This was my first experience in the rental world, and I thought that I could handle it myself. I'm a educated guy, I thought, and uh, 
I don't need a property manager. I don't need someone doing background checks. I got this, honey. I kept telling my wife, I got this, honey. And it was a horrible experience. Our first two tenants didn't pay rent. Our last tenant, we were unable to evict them after a number of months. It was horrible. The property was a great property. It was produced. It would it would have produced cash had we had the right management in place. But I had to learn the hard way. And this, my mother tells me this all the time that Eric, you, that's the only way you learn is the hard way sometimes. And so I think lesson learned is know your role, know your expertise, and surround yourself with people who. You can't be an expert at everything. And so I'm not an expert at managing properties. I'm not an expert at running background checks. I have I don't know the least about it. And so knowing what you're good at, staying in your lane, and then building a team around you. And it goes with anything, whether it's financing a deal, finding a deal, due diligence, surround your team surround yourself with a team of people who are experts in each of those fields because you can't be an expert in everything. And some of us unfortunately, Taylor, had to learn that the hard way. Sometimes I learn the hard way as well. It's funny what we learned that you used to live probably about a half a mile in Richmond from where I live right now, which is yeah. uh, kind of funny. Very small world type of thing. Now we go to my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yes. Yeah, so I'll keep this relative to the topic today of cost segregation, but I see all too often where investors again, staying in your lane, knowing what you're good at, are trying to do their taxes themselves. Two answers to your question. One is, as you build your real estate portfolio, unless you have a degree in accounting or are a certified public accountant, don't try and do your own taxes because you're probably doing yourself a huge disservice. So that's the first thing. Get yourself a good tax preparer, somebody who understands the tax code. Second thing is, not only do you need to find a tax preparer, you need to find a tax strategist, and those are two different things. Tax preparers take your information that you give them. You take your W-2s, your K-1s, you give it to them, they run it through a a machine, and it spits out what you owe in taxes. That's a tax preparer. They've got them in the lobbies at your Walmarts, the H&R blocks. They're just there to prepare your taxes. That's very different than a tax strategist. As your listeners or as you start to invest in larger real estate deals, you really need a tax strategist, somebody who understands the tax code, somebody who understands real estate, because I can't tell you how many times we've worked with clients across the country and they have left tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table in terms of taxes, simply by one, doing their taxes themselves, or two, using a family friend that they've used for 30 years who doesn't understand real estate. And so I can't stress that enough. Find yourself, especially if you've got a decent-sized portfolio of investment properties, find yourself a good tax strategist. You should be meeting with them at least quarterly talking about, hey, what properties are you buying? What type of income do you have this year? What deductions do you have? If you're just meeting with your CPA once a year, you know, usually in March, right before the deadline, it's too late. The damage is already done. So find yourself a tax preparer and pay them whatever they ask because it's worth every dollar. In the, in the amount of money you'll save in taxes. Yeah, or in sometimes my case, meeting with them in June after having filed an extension because K-1s are you know sometimes right. delayed and everything. Right. That's the way it can be. Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to find you, where can they track you down? Yeah, best place is our website. So it's just www.costsegsegauthority.com. So my contact information is on there. You can request a free analysis if you've got a property you think might benefit from cost segregation. We'll always do a free analysis, let you know what we think we can get on it, what the fee would be in order to do the study. 
If you have any questions, use us as a resource, you guys. We don't bill by the hour. We don't actually do tax returns at our firm. We just do cost segregation. So if you've got any questions, we're happy to to review things, go over things with you. Again, we're not going to send you a bill for taking a half hour of our time on the phone. <laughs> don't hesitate to reach out. Well, awesome. I certainly appreciate it. You've taken a half an hour of your time with us today, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate that as well. To everybody out there, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.